1: You're tuned in to the show on the road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupatin. Let's go. This week on the show, I bring you a special quarantine conversation I had with lead songwriter and singer Matt Quinn of the rapidly rising jangly pop phenoms, Mount Joy. Now, their name came from a place in Valley Forge National Park, but I want you to think about what brings you to the top of your mountain of joy. Is it running full speed with your dog on the beach? Is it sitting in your driveway with the sun on your face reading a good book? During this strange time, maybe it's making macrame curtains like a friend in Nashville, or if you're like me, you're probably trying to process Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death by writing a seven-minute protest song about her inspiring life, and then singing it to the indifferent neighborhood cats who peer at me suspiciously over the fence. We all have that thing that can lift us back up after we've tumbled down the mountain. And maybe a new album by your favorite pop rock band out of Pennsylvania doesn't seem like it matters. But... Mount Joy's raw-boned rager of a new album, Rearrange Us, it took me out of my darkness for a moment. It made me forget that we were clinging to the edge of a cliff with blindfolds on, whistling Dixie. It makes me smile as I send postcards to swing voters in Florida and Michigan, hoping against hope that in about a month from when I record this, our complicated conundrum of a country and our creaky and crumbling democracy doesn't leap backwards into a defiant dark age which only violent revolution may be able to write again. Where was I again? Right, Mount Joy. Well, if you haven't heard of these guys, you soon will. And while most young bands shy away from writing extensively about addiction or describing Jesus as a reborn, grateful, dead-loving stoner or examining generational violence and brutality in Baltimore, Matt Quinn and his talented gang of collaborators bring a fearlessness to their pop songwriting. After the surprising success of their homemade singles Astrovan and Sheep and their ubiquitously delicious self-titled record that seemed to go everywhere at once, they were soon playing hallowed festivals like Newport Folk and Bonnaroo and playing huge white-knuckle tours opening for the Shins, the Head and the Heart, and the Lumineers. And maybe what surprised the band most of all, their emotional folk rock song Silver Lightning, it went to number one on the AAA radio charts. That is almost impossible to pull off from a band that almost no one has heard of. But as Quinn mentions in our talk, by the time the band released their much-hyped sequel record Rearrange Us early in 2020, the group of friends and collaborators were fraying at the seams. Relentless time away from loved ones caused breakups that were a long time coming. And trying to match incredibly high expectations again and again had forced the band to ask themselves what they really wanted out of this new nomadic whiplash rock and roll life. Was it bringing them joy? In many ways, bands like mine, Dust Bowl Revival, that have toured 150 days a year for the last seven plus years, this forced time off is a blessing in disguise. And it's allowed Quinn and Mountjoy to reflect and recharge. Of course, with a feverish fan base from Philly to L.A. waiting for them, Mount Joy isn't about to rest very long. And if you're a fan, you may have noticed they are currently playing sold-out shows at drive-in theaters all across the East Coast and Midwest. There's no way of getting around it, really. Live music is really hard to pull off safely right now. But people are doing it, including my friends at Jam in the Van. They are hosting us for their speakeasy session this Friday, October 2nd in West L.A. You can buy a few of the last remaining VIP tickets. Please go on DustbowlRevival.com for more. It is the first time we're playing live in six and a half months, and it may be the last of the year. If you want something a little more personal, you can hire Dust Bowl Revival to do a Dust Bowl delivery show in your backyard. We just tried one in Culver City last week, and it was a blast. Well, I think I'm going to leave it there for now, guys. Please register to vote. And if you're on iTunes, leave us a kind review and share this show with your friends and family. Coming up next week, more episodes. Here he is now, without further ado, Matt Quinn of Mount Joy.
2: Hey, yeah, I'm I'm Matt Quinn, and I write songs and play in the band Mount Joy.
1: So you and <clears throat> Sam Cooper kind of reunited, right, out here in LA, and then and that's how it all started percolating for real.
2: Yeah, um, you know, it was one of those things where I, I, you know, grew up listening to music, playing music, wanting to be a songwriter, writing songs, not really knowing where the line was where you actually become a songwriter. Uh, but was always writing songs and, and playing them out. And um, and then, you know, kind of after I, after I finished up college and sort of got to that, I think, point that a lot of, you know, musicians get to where I, I sort of had been doing it for long enough to feel like it was just never going to work. And so I moved out to LA, uh, not related to music. You know, a lot of times we get like, you know, like the radio interview the guy's like see you moved out to LA to follow your dreams and I sort of just let it go. I sort of just let it go because it's like okay it's such an easy narrative for them let, the, let them run that down but but no it wasn't like that I just moved out to LA because at the time I I, I I was I was interested in moving to LA but also I had a girlfriend who was from there and really was just following her out there and was looking for jobs um, outside the music world because I I wanted to like pay rent and you know I I kept playing music on the side and Basically, Sam did the same thing, you know. Um, we had played music together in high school, but it's not like we were in a band or anything during during college. So we really hadn't, you know, played music together in a long time. It just so happened that, you know, and I think this is true of a lot of transplants uh, to Los Angeles. I moved out there, and I didn't really know anybody except my girlfriend. And Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I And so, yes, to have Sam move out there, it was almost more like he was just a guy I knew from my hometown that I could I could hang out with on the weekends, and we both loved playing music, and, and and that's really where it started.
1: What did you study in college?
2: I actually studied music and and like music business. It was like a it was an interesting degree, and I feel like uh, there are times that I'm like, oh, this is really helpful, and then you know, as you know, it's, the music industry is is very tricky and sometimes shady and there's nothing that's really done by the book so I don't know how how
1: useful it actually is it's probably more useful now more than ever because we are small businesses that's really kind of what we are we also play music one hour a night you know or so when we're on 100%. tour but so much of our uh, existence as you know these musical entrepreneurs is trying to just spread your musical message to people in a way that is intriguing and um, new. You know, I moved out to LA basically to follow a a lady. I had a job at an advertising office, and I would just sneak around playing music because it was my obsession. And then eventually you look up 10 years later and you're like, oh, I I guess I'm a professional musician now. That's just what it is.
2: That's you know, it's the same for us. We, we, we came out there and just, you know, you're playing music with people and you pick the songs that you like and you record those. It's, it's not always as like, you know, I think some people try to try to make a specific type of music or, and that's really great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, I think for a lot of people, they're just writing and, and trying to, you know, whether it's say something specific, uh, express something specific, um, probably more focused on that than, like, what genre is this going to fall into? You know, I, I think that's true of a lot of artists.
1: Great songs are great songs, you know. And, and you guys first dip your toe into a recording with this crazy song, Astrovan, right, about 2016, <laughs> right? Sounds yep. like you guys, you know, wanted to talk about that feeling of being stuck and tr- wanting to pursue a dream and realizing... Um, that you got to just do it, even if it's uh, the weirdest song that anyone's ever heard about a doobie-smoking <laughs> Jesus who put you on the guest list. Who was yeah, that, I mean, I... that character in that song, Astervan? Like, Was that based on someone that you saw?
2: Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I, I actually, um, when I first got to L.A., one of the first gigs that I was able to get was I sort of was assisting um, a, a manager in the EDM space, um which was extremely interesting i knew nothing about it and uh it, it wasn't music that i was familiar with but you know it was a job so i took it and uh um and there was just this character that i think he was also a manager um same similar similar situation you know just like long beard and i i was kind of picturing him you know uh, sort of like you know he sort of replaced this character in my mind of like i was watching all of these young people my age, really, trying to become DJs. And, you know, on the weekends I was going and, and trying to catch, you know, sh- shows at, like, the Hotel Cafe and just just trying to, like, get a, a sense for, like, what was going on in L.A. musically. And I was seeing it from two very different genres, which was interesting. But what was the same was the hustle, you know? There's such a, there's such a hustle in, in Los Angeles at a certain, you know, um, level. And uh, I think the Hotel Cafe is sort of, like, uh, the level that, that the hustle sort of exists at and, and beneath that open mics and stuff like that. But, but the hustle is the same, you know, it's, it's people who are super talented, um, and they're trying to break through this thing, but you, you as a musician are watching this or myself was watching this. And I was like, you know, you're trying to add it up and the economics of it are crazy. I mean, it's crazy what people put themselves through to try to become an artist um and the vast majority of them um and certainly to, for me to that point it was the same really toil in what you would consider financial failure i mean it just it just doesn't work the numbers don't add up um and they're doing it because they love to do it at that point or because they you know the combination of the fact that they love to do it and 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 it's all they can see themselves doing. They, they genuinely believe, at least I did at the time, like, this is what I'm best at. You know, I'm not good at being a man. I'm not good at being a manager. Like, you don't want me as your manager. <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, you get thrown into these other jobs. And it just I think it really solidifies, you know, all these people have day jobs. And it, it, I think it just solidifies that what you're best at is, is being a musician. But that's such a difficult road. And I was watching so many people do that. And that, that was really the inspiration. I mean, the, 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 Jesus aspect of it was somewhat based on a character, but I think it was more just, you know, this idea that, and again, it's funny because it's, it's let us, that song has led us down at times, a path of, you know, people wondering if we're, um, you know, specifically a Christian band, um, which is, which, I'm, which I, which I, is fine. I have uh, nothing against that, but I, I, I'm not. So it was really more just Jesus the character is sort of built up as this hero and he's, you know, but he's this allegedly, he's a carpenter. I imagined that he would like drive around in a van and I was like, maybe these people you know, are the heroes. Like the people at the hotel cafe and the um, and, and at these open mics and people that are really hustling, like maybe there's sort of a, a way to make those people the heroes of a song and so that was, that was really more it.
1: Well the thing that makes me fall in love with your music is that you stack these big questions one after another in a song it's like most people are like all right I'm gonna write a hook with one big question and you're more like maybe there's no heaven and maybe we're all alone together and this question of everything in one chorus you know in one line and it's so compelling as someone who's a word junkie. I like as many words in a song as possible. (laughs) And you're not shy about cramming in huge questions, which I love.
3: Angels smoking cigarettes on rooftops in fishnets in the morning with the moon still glowing. And here comes Jesus in an astro van Rolling down the strip again He's stoned while Jerry plays He said life ain't ever what it seems These dreams are more than paper things It's alright mama, you're afraid I'll be poor along the way But I don't want to see those tears again You know Jesus drives an astro van
1: And it's funny that, you know, something like Astrovan would come together partially based on you finding your, uh, your bass player on Craigslist.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, before this interview started, I, I was listening to the podcast and I do such a great job. I was checking out, it sounds like you were in a similar situation, but, uh, which is funny, which is funny because people are always so bewildered that we found our music or some of the people in the band on on Craigslist. I'm always like, don't other people do this? I feel like this must happen. But so I'm glad that we share that. But um, but yeah, you you know, like I said, we we were out there and we we had this song, Man, um, We had a couple other songs that ended up you know being on the first album. And uh, you know, for, for us, it was really just we didn't know anyone and and we d- we weren't tapped into the scene. If anything, I was tapped into like an EDM <laughs> scene that was so far yeah. from the music that I listened to and, and wanted to make. So I it, it hit up Craigslist and literally everyone acts like it's this crazy thing where you meet all these crazy people. But I think if you have like, you know, a, a decent sense of who's crazy, you know, you can figure it out. Like someone responds and like, yeah. you know, very strange way or like the english isn't adding up or whatever it is um for us it was we got a normal email back from a guy named michael burns who is our bassist to this day and and he came and he you know we practiced astrovan a couple times he introduced us actually to his roommate um caleb nelson who is a is an amazing producer and guitar and piano player um and uh tours with uh like sabrina carpenter and and you know does some other stuff i think in terms of production and caleb uh, agreed to record um the the songs actually like the first kind of four original songs like just in their house for you know whatever money we could kind of um get together and and he did an amazing job and he mixed and you know mastered it uh and actually that that version of astrovan is the same we kept that version it's just recorded in in michael's house uh Um, in North Hollywood. So, Michael, the Craigslist thing really worked out. I
1: mean, it's destiny sometimes. It feels that way. You can't explain it. I mean, yes, I mean, the joke is that we're a Craigslist band. You know, a lot of the original members for 10 years are all from that initial ad that I put out. Um, Sure. And I remember, you know, reading about Big Brother and the Holding Company uh putting out an ad in the i think san francisco chronicle and janice joplin is the first person who shows up amazing <laughs> so i was like hey like people do this right uh, yeah i mean how else you know because yeah i think people assume if you're in la for a few years you kind of like get to know everybody and that's not the case
2: i th- i'm always really jealous of artists um uh, songwriters, whatever it may be that, that have like a real like community and they know all these people. I'm always like, how do you, you know, I, I find that it's often, uh, actually songwriters in LA that, that are, um, you know, really doing the songwriting circuit for other people and getting in a bunch of different sessions. I'm always jealous of those folks. Cause I feel like they, they end up knowing everybody. And, um, I think, I think one of the, the, yeah, one of the misconceptions is that like we all know each other because we like played Lollapalooza at different years, at different times, yeah. different stages.
1: The song that you recorded uh, next, as part of those initial flurry of singles, uh, "Sheep," I think is also, you know, pretty fearless in confronting some big, dark questions. You know, you're you're talking about, you know, blood on the streets of Baltimore and. Basically, that this breakdown in our society is a war between people uh, with the wrong skin color and the cops and people uh, harming each other throughout generational shifts, you know. And that's not a song that would uh, intrigue pop radio (laughs) DJs, necessarily. And yet it feels like something that should be on pop radio right now, and it would fit perfectly.
2: Yeah, it certainly wasn't aimed at, at the radio in any way, and, and it really was just the experience of my brother uh, went to college, older brother went to college in Baltimore, and um, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, so it wasn't too far away. But, you know, it was a city that I, I, I came to, to know a little bit, and, and then, you know, you watched The Wire, and then, uh, I don't know, I just sort of was a city that that I really liked and learned more and more about the sort of institutional racism there. And, um, and obviously it's become incredibly relevant today, but I think it points to the fact that, you this has been going on for, you know, hundreds of years, literally, but even more specifically, the sort of, um, stuff that is being talked about today is not new in any way. Um, I think it's really important that, you know, there's, you know, there's unfortunate situations that have led to the light being shown on it brighter and brighter. But, um, yeah, I think it was just something that I was really moved by, and, and I, it's it's incredibly unfair um, and unjust what's what's happened to people that live in uh, underserved communities like Baltimore. Um, and yeah, just something that that inspired me to write a song.
1: something pretty subversive that you're saying in the chorus about almost like the flag being desecrated or if you, you know, if you cut it up, it's still the red, white, and blue, you know, and that you can look at our country from so many different angles and you can burn it all down and it's still America, you know, and we still have to kind of own it. And, um, you know, I'm impressed that you guys just went there. In that song, especially early on, I feel like sometimes bands wait two, three albums to like actually start saying something. I can say that about myself for sure. You know, a lot sure. of our early music is pretty goofy and just purely about joy and punchlines. You know, trying to get people sure. to react and have a good time. Sure. And our record that came out in 2020 has some pretty intense political uh, commentary. But it took me, you know, four albums to really be like, okay, now is the time. And you guys went right at it out of the gate.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, I I, I think for me, I won't give ourselves I won't give us too much credit there because well for one, you know, I think we, we felt like, you know, we were kind of doing both. We had this goofy um Song about Jesus smoking weed, and we we were doing all of that. You know, we felt like we kind of had the like, um, you know, Jesus drives an Astrovan tagline that you know people might find goofy and funny and
1: or offensive, and,
2: or offensive. I guess you know, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, you're right. I probably should have thought of that more, but I, again, you know, so much of it, and I, I don't know if this was the case for you guys. Like, if you guys had you know, regular gigs already lined up and stuff, but like, there were no gigs, like there were, there was nothing to, to be afraid of. And I think that was really freeing in a way. Like, you know, I think we didn't fear that the crowd wouldn't like it. There was no crowd. It was just, we're just making music and trying to be inspired by the things that I was inspired by. And um, I didn't feel, I think you're right to, to, to sort of assume, or at least it got me thinking about it just now, you know, would it be harder to write Sheep right now? And I don't think I could write a song like Sheep right now just because it might even feel too, you know, like I'm trying to take advantage of the moment and get a song in there, you know, edgewise. And I, I think that, the, you know, the, the situation was just pretty ripe for someone to be fearless.
1: You remember what your first official show was with Mount Joy?
2: I do. Um, the first official band show is really funny. We played at a place in LA called The Resident, um, in downtown LA. And, uh, it was a four band bill. Um, and our friends, Will Dorado had a residency there. Um, and they invited us to play. And, uh, you know, we, the funny story of it that we still talk about to this day is that, you know, the sound was like, brutal. It's a four band bill. And the sound check just was not a thing. And, you know,
1: we four bands is too much on a bill.
2: Oh yeah, it's too many bands. Yeah, <laughs> uh, oftentimes at some of these venues, one band is too much for the sound people to handle, <laughs> uh, and this was a disaster. I mean, you know, like the I think we went first of four, um, and oh yeah, and so we got like no sound check. We just sort of rolled up there. We used other people's amps, and I play and I I like to play my acoustic through an amp. So imagine the feedback. It was absolutely a disaster. And at one point, the feedback was just. It was just like an infinite feedback loop. Like just picture the worst possible performance, you know, in terms of like the crowd, like covering their ears. And uh, and I looked out to see the sound guy to be like, hey, you got to like mute my amp or something like this place is about to explode. And, and there was no one at the sound booth. <laughs> and um, my friend at the time had to like go look for the sound guy. You know, we didn't have like anyone there on our behalf or anything. And he was just out smoking a cigarette. So... That was that was a good introduction for us. It's
1: funny how time works because one minute you're playing this tiny club and it's a total disaster. You're the first of four, and then you're playing an arena with the Lumineers and the Head and the Heart, and that disaster show was not that long ago.
2: No, no, and I'm sure you guys experienced this too, but when you're touring, time... And, and that's been this weird comforting thing like I've been telling my my girlfriend even during... This pandemic is that this feels familiar in the sense that when you're touring, um, at least as much as we have, time moves in a very strange way where things feel like they're really far away. But also they right. feel like they sometimes time like pushes and pulls in this strange way. And I, I think it has something to do with the traveling But it's very similar to what it's like in the pandemic for, I think, everyone now, where you look back to March, and it feels like that was six years ago. It does. That we first started doing this pandemic. I don't understand the psychology of it, but it's very similar to touring, where, you know, you go on a six-week tour, and you feel like at the end of it, maybe you have a new crew member or something. You feel like you've known him your whole life. You know, it's, it's strange. It's very similar to what's happening now. But that resident show feels like it was a decade ago, but you're right. I mean, it was in... It was in 2017, probably, so it wasn't that long ago. It's pretty crazy. And, you know, thanks to, you know, maybe some kismet
1: and your song Silver Lining taking off, you guys suddenly go from the middle of nowhere in terms of mass consciousness to playing, you know, Lollapalooza. I mean, these are big jumps for bands in any era. And do you feel like that song, Silver Lining, was sort of your golden ticket, or was it a series of events that led you to, uh, you know, getting into people's minds.
2: I think of it, I say this sometimes, I don't know if it, there's any truth to it, but if, if you if anyone's read the book Outliers, they say like for a plane to crash or Malcolm Gladwell says that for a plane to crash, you know, seven things in a row need to go wrong. And, and that's, and I think it's the opposite for a band to be successful. Like you need like seven things in a row to go right. And then if you connect all the dots at once, it's like the door kind of unlocks and and some things kind of start happening for you. Um, And I think that's sort of what happened for us is that, you know, we put out this song, Astro Van did reasonably well, and then followed it up with Sheep and then kind of kept rolling these singles out because we didn't have an album. And it just kept working. Each one was like, you know, oh, people like that as well. And then then we hit, um, we were able to put out Silver Lining as a single for our album and It did well, and I think that just sort of—it was really the combination of things, sort of leading up to Silver Lining, and then Silver Lining um, sort of cracked the door open for us a little bit.
1: But again, you guys are confronting some pretty dark uh, territory in Silver Lining. You know, you're talking about—you know—the cycle of addiction and uh, trying to tell the ones that you love that they matter and that things are going to be okay, but you don't know if they really will, you know? And that's something that I think we can all, um, identify with. But again, for something to hit that hard for a large amount of people, it's pretty, uh, intense territory to cover.
2: Yeah. And I actually originally struggled with, with that a little bit because, you know, the song's very personal to me and, uh, and it was a song that I wrote in, actually in college. So it was a song that predated Mount Joy and had no idea it was going to, you know, I'd played that song at bars to, you know, 10 people who would show up to my shows in Boston where I went to school. And, um, and so I really didn't know that it was ever going to have that sort of impact. But, you know, one thing that was difficult was, you know, it started doing well on the radio and, and it just sort of, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of songwriters go through this. It's like, a song that's really personal to you or maybe somewhat cathartic to you that you know maybe the original reason i wrote music was to sort of deal with some of the stuff that mm-hmm. uh, i was going through and then all of a sudden you have some guy you know at a, on a, a radio station like you know trying to re you know like s- s- ask you questions about it and it, it just it just sort of it was a, it was an adjustment for me to be like okay and this song has like sort of become this um, for better or worse, like commercial thing, like it 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 has it's been it's a like a lot of people that they're selling yeah, a hundred percent and and I'm supposed to be here like selling it and and explaining now I'm like talking to like people in Madison, Wisconsin about like opioid addiction and I'm like I, this isn't what I signed up for but it, you know so so I think it 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 is interesting that like and I'm happy to do that it's not that it's just. It, it was a real learning curve for me in terms of like, okay, you know, now I feel like I have this platform and instead of this being like a personal thing to me, I have to sort of find a way to like, you know, m- like you said, yeah, like make it make it less personal in a way so that I, I don't have to like think about some of the really personal stuff all the time every morning, you know, at AAA radio or whatever it is.
1: Did the person or the, the people who were going through this
2: Addiction? Did they
1: ever hear the song and did they react to
2: it? Unfortunately, no. Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was about a friend of mine that passed away, and uh, and so so no. But you know, there are a lot of people that were sort of around that situation that that I think know um, who who it's about and and what the what the the song is, and, and because it existed before um, Mount Joy, I, I think a lot of people. Um, you know who are close to me were, were just sort of like just generally so proud of, of everything that was happening but maybe took like some extra pride in that for sure which was which was great
1: is an interesting line that's constantly being crossed by songwriters um, where they have to mine their own pain for financial gain <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and that's the stuff that really does um, hit people on a bigger scale you know the personal specific moments of pain that you can relate that people didn't necessarily have the courage uh, to talk about in their own life you know um, and sure. I think it's also tricky when <laughs> there's a moment of pain or sadness that is totally made up, which is something that I did with a song called sure. Go- Got Over, which is by far our band Bowl Revival's most listened to song, sure. and it's about something that never happened, but it was sure something that maybe could happen or that you feared could happen, you know, losing someone suddenly for no reason, and, sure. you know, like grown men will come up to me in the street and say how it like, you know, made them cry with their wife the other night. And you're like, I'm so moved by that. But also i not saying like you feel like a fraud, but you feel like I wish I could um, empathize with you in that this person did lose someone to a horrible accident, you know? And um, I always viewed myself as more of a fiction writer Um, as someone who could create something out of nothing. And I think um, music is so personal for people that they assume that it had to have happened to you if it feels real, you know? Sure.
2: Sure. I mean, and that's a terrific song, by the way. Uh, Love that song. Thank you, man. You know you know, and, and, but I think even that song, you know, that there's, there's narrative songwriting in that song about, you know, running a red light and and you, you can, you can just see how people, I guess, two things. One, when you write a really great song and when, when you, when you storytell in the way that that song does, people completely lose themselves in the narrative. And there's no, like you said, there's no questioning whether it's true or not. And I think, the second thing is, is that I think that's actually a really valuable angle that I'm trying to get better at, because I think the success of our, our first album and um, to the extent that our second album, you know, is successful, it, it's sort of just my style of writing is it's just easiest for me. I, I think what you did there is is, is requires more skill um, to be to write a narrative that's outside of your experience um, is to me like almost more valuable in the sense that it allows you to to bring in, um, you know, more detail and, and and to like describe something from a different perspective outside of it, I think often allows you to, to see it more um, clearly, if, if you will, like, you know, the bird's eye view of a, a situation like that is often probably an easier way to explain it to a large group of people than to be you know, staring at it from really close, which I think is uh, a valuable perspective too. But I actually wish that I was better at that. You know, sometimes I try and I'm always questioning myself like, you know, why would anyone care what I think of this situation or whatever? But I think when you break through that and you you have a breakthrough like that song, um, you know, you, you see that it's just all of music and songwriting for me is storytelling to some extent. And, When you tell a really good story, it doesn't matter if it happened to you or if you're describing something that happens to a lot of people outside of you. Well,
1: also it's about really going deep and going to the place that you didn't want to go sometimes. And that song partially came together playing in a crappy Rehearsal studio for this producer Who did that record, Ted Hutt Who was like this Mm -hmm. kind of gentle Reformed British punk rocker Who started flogging Molly and these other bands Dropkick Murphys He does a lot of stuff with And he heard this sort of soft Melancholy love song About mourning someone you lost And he Picked that one as like The one we should really focus on Which I was very surprised about You know And I wouldn't have necessarily picked that one. But he also got into an argument with me during the recording process about, like, masking the tragedy with poetic language. And he's like, Mm. what actually fucking happened? Like, can Mm. we see that scene? You know? And that verse of, you know, seeing the flashing police lights and whatever, that was partially because he was like, get to the fucking point. Sure. You know? And I'm like, yeah, but let's not, like, really say it. And he's like, sure. say it, <laughs> you know? Sure. And I'm really grateful for him for pushing me there. Who did you uh, work with on your, your newest record, uh, Rearrange Us?
2: Yeah, so the newest record, um, we worked with Tucker Martin. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, so good,
1: man. So good.
2: Yeah, he's such a talented guy. And, and uh, yeah, you know, as, as you know, I guess, you know, he... Done stuff with my morning jacket, Nico Case, The Decemberists, and so many artists that, you know, when we were winding up to record it, like he just made the most sense because so many of the the stuff, so many of the records that he made are are some of our favorite records. So we we were, we feel super lucky.
1: I feel like that newest record is a series of pep talks to yourself. <laughs> Am I wrong? That's probably true.
2: That's 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 almost definitely true.
1: Or like you speaking to yourself in the recent past and being like, it's going to be cool, it's going to be okay, but you should probably do this.
2: <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think um, it's, you know, people clamor for or there's sort of a, I don't know, narrative, I guess, around like, bands making breakup albums. But um, again, like I said, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have done this, but, you know, we toured like crazy um, for three years um, and it had an impact on all of our, um, everyone in our band's personal lives. You know, I, I, when we went in to make the record with Tucker, I think we we left on um, like June first to go up to Portland to make the record. And and I think I got, uh, I I, I broke up or I got dumped, I should say, on like May 25th or something like that. So it was like six days after uh, like a five year relationship ended. Um, And, you know, obviously there's, it wasn't, it wasn't sudden. So like some of the songwriting um, and then some of the songs that sort of came to me right in that moment and then, you know, other band members had had breakups before that. So it was like, if ever we were going to pour our our kind of collective consciousness together into making a breakup record, it was like, it was, you know, and I think I sort of maybe learned why there are so many breakup records out there. It's because like, you know, these bands are out touring and they get dumped. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. like, it's not like the best, uh, most uh, fertile ground for a, a relationship if it's sort of going to be that long distance. So... Yeah, it was definitely pep talks. It was definitely just trying to find, a lot of it was trying to find, like, you know, I want to be, and, and so do the members of the band. Like, I want to be a person that, like, has a partner and has someone to share life with. But I also really, really enjoy this music thing that we've found and uh, trying to just say, like, you know, we're going to do this music thing, this is sort of the pep talk, and and we're going to have, you know, the yin and the yang of life along the way. And it's not all going to be good for us, but if, if we can kind of search for the positives, um, in, in our situation, then, you know, then maybe we can, we can find our way out of it. And, you know, we were hoping that that would, that would connect with people because whether it's a breakup or a pandemic, you know, it's like, you, you, you kind of are only going to be as healthy as the way you react to these things. And, uh, and, and that's that's sort of what that record was about.
1: Yeah, I mean, that opener, Bug Eyes, has this very fraught scene of, um, you know, the lead character saying that he's always waiting and waiting and waiting and realizing that he's going to wait too long, you know, and sure. questioning, like, are we all right? Are we going to be all yeah. right? And that ambiguity is what's so powerful because I think a lot of us, even in good relationships and marriages, are are wondering, like, are we actually okay if we really dig beneath the surface?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, that, that song was what we purposely wanted to be the opener because it, it just spoke to a feeling that I think um, we all had. And I'm sure so many, you know, traveling touring musicians have where, you know, you kind of hang up the phone call of a long distance relationship and you sense that there's like, is there something there? Like, are you mad is that person mad at me or are they feeling some sort of way you know you, you kind of are constantly in this torturous game of like man i know this isn't isn't it's hard on that person or or i'm i'm doing kind of a selfish thing out here on the road and um and all of us with a conscience i think are are sort of left to deal with that and that 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 song definitely is sort of opening the album in that way of like this is just kind of the way the the anxiety of, of being out on the road and, and trying to hold things down in, in, in your life.
1: Well, especially when you're going from playing to no one to touring with the Head and the Heart and the Shins and, uh, you know, playing Bonnaroo and Newport Folk Fest. It's like, you want to dive headlong into this moment because a lot of bands uh try for 10, 20 years and they never get into those places. And it's like, well, I have to really, you know, dive into this now, or I may never see this again. And I think a lot of times relationships want, you know, the love between two people to be the main thing in in life. And that's not necessarily the case when you're on the road and you're really experiencing that first blush of recognition.
2: Yeah. And there's two things to that. And and one is, is that I, I think, you know, we're not, you know, I'm, I'm 29 years old. I, I, I totally got that. Like I, we all did. And I, I think that to some extent, our success so far has been predicated on the fact that we knew that we had to take advantage of these opportunities in part because, you know, none of us were, <clears throat> you know, I often say this, like, I think our success happened at the right time in our lives because, you know, I did try to be, you know, since I was a kid, you know, trying trying to travel around driving, playing shows and paying to play shows and and I know exactly what you're talking about. And we all do. We've all failed in our own endeavors and different bands. And and so we knew like this moment, you know, wasn't, you know, and, and there is a sort of um, feeling that, you know, our band like exploded overnight and everything. And, and we were so much less focused on that and more focused on the, the timeline of our, ourselves as musicians. Like this is our big chance in a decade, yeah. you know, in over a decade. So, so we were so locked in on that and and i think you know at the detriment of maybe some other things in our lives and, and that yeah i mean that, that sort of is is probably a familiar tale and that, and, and that's cer- certainly where the second record lands
3: on um. the day you left I could tell by your you were going to my life the in the night water, dark, dark water. Eyes could see no farther than my hands. You say you wanted a plan. may you always look forward.
1: The other thing that I I think really like about what you're doing, especially in this newest record, Rearrange Us, is... And maybe you won't like this term, but I think you're making a new classic rock. Like, the the music that I loved growing up, um, the Stones and the Beatles and... um, you know, the Staple Singers and Stevie Wonder, it's like stuff that is so ingrained in our national psyche at this point. Um But it really also was daring and full of politics and energy that captured the insane transformation that our country was going through in the 60s and the 70s. And I feel like you guys have this... Way of really saying something, but also creating just catchy as fuck hooks and having those two things come together is what classic rock is for me. <laughs> and melding soul and funk and, and blues and, and rock and roll and putting it all together. And you guys have, you know, just some really fun stuff like Let Loose that feels like could have been an Almond Brothers song for me.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's actually a really great way to put it. I mean, those are our our influences. I grew up in a in a house where that music was always on, you know. Um my dad, you know, a big record collector and would, you know, play vinyls on the weekend and you know just walking around the house sort of soaking in that music and and always like, you know, when I got to my like teenage years and I was like trying to become a songwriter, I I instead of like revolting from my parents music, like I, you know, would dig the crate for like, you know, what's my favorite Neil Young record and why, and trying to, you know, really go down that rabbit hole. And so I think, you know, where we do end up kind of being fortunate is that I think that's sort of our, my wheelhouse at least is like, you know, you do have to have to have something that people can attach to in the song sometimes on the record. You know, I think they're Uh, all those artists that you name sometimes have very self-indulgent songs that are hookless or whatever. And, and maybe those are the more forgotten gems or something. I don't know, but so much of that music, you're totally right. Is, is like, yeah, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're saying four dead in Ohio, but he's doing it in a way that like, I could tell you the melody right now, you know? So it's, 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 uh, yeah, I think that that's probably the best description that I've ever gotten of like, you know, kind of why we ended up in this, like, um, you know, with songs on the radio and stuff is that I have no idea how to write a song and maybe that'll be to our detriment, but like, I I genuinely don't know like what the song structure is of like a great radio song. And that certainly doesn't go through my head, but I guess I'm sort of imitating guys who, who, and women, um, who, who accomplished that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So sort of by osmosis, maybe, maybe that's where we end up where we are.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, going back to Let Loose, I mean, a lot of people don't listen to lyrics in songs, which always makes me laugh. Um, Yeah. And a lot of times people are going to listen to that song and be like, man, sweet guitar solo, bro. Like, that's what they're (laughs) going to go with, which is cool. But maybe if they listen to it a third or fourth time, they'll hear, you know, that line, you know, I wonder if I'm ever going to go find my truth, you know? Yeah. And my question is, what is that truth that you are questioning there? Like, what is the what is the truth that you're looking for and maybe you don't know i don't know
2: yeah i i think the maybe i don't know is 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 part of it but I, I think i just felt like and i don't know if you've ever felt this but that sometimes you know when you're touring and you're doing all this stuff like sometimes it feels really prescient and important and like wow we're doing this crazy stuff but then sometimes I zoom out from it and I'm like, what are we doing? Like I play like acoustic guitar for a living and like my girlfriend hates me, you know, or whatever's going on in <laughs> yeah. your life. Like, like, what am I doing? You know, like, uh, uh, I'm not like rich. Like I, there's, there's no real thing. I just love this dang music so much. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, am I, am I going to ever have a moment where I like stand back and I'm like, this is totally it. Like I'm, I'm feeling great and I feel like, this is what I should be doing, and this is the people I should be with. I think it's more that. Like, I'm always sort of wondering, like, is there ever a moment in your life, as I've gotten older, like, is there ever, like, just a moment where you, you know, I don't know, cinematically breathe it all in and are like, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I don't know. I think that's more it.
3: Wonder if I'm ever gonna come back. Stuck in the groove Like I don't know What to do Wonder if I Ever lose When you're the only one That knows What I'm going to do Like hell won't save us With our trouble I just need some love Forever after all
1: Our time You know, that line, I just need some love forever after all. I mean, really, a lot of us are performers or choose to do this life because sometimes selfishly we like just feeling the love in a room full of strangers. That's the thing that I miss most with, you know, not playing live shows is, you know, even if it's a half-empty room, the ten people at the front of the room are just giving all of themselves to you, you know, in a way sure. that even your close friends and family won't. You know, people who just are there to listen and to be a part of these stories that you're telling.
2: A hundred percent. I think for, for us it's you know, there are a couple songs or moments in the set um where we try to take it down and, you know, sing a prescient song or, or you know a little more quietly and and, you know, if the crowd, you know, some nights you could drop a pin and those nights it like, it just feels like that energy is amazing. These people are really listening to me and and that's amazing. And then, you know, some some nights you get the drunk crowd on a Saturday night and it was a mistake to to put that in the set and, or whatever. And, and you're just up there and you're going through the motions, but like, you can literally hear the guy like, yeah, and then I just uh, closed a deal with Samsung, you know, whatever. And you're like, oh God, like, you know, whatever.
1: <laughs> well, it's about not taking every night personally, and that's something that I, I've struggled to do maybe as a super sensitive, empathetic person, but you want to believe that, you know, after five, six, ten years, that you could roll into Philadelphia and play a, a show, and people would be lined up to see you and be really ready to uh, experience the new stories that you're telling. And sometimes that's not the case. You know, when you've put out five, six records like we have, <clears throat> you realize that a lot of people liked your weird old timey stuff better than your more nuanced political soul rock and roll stuff that you're doing sure. now. And people leave. People uh, are not okay with the changes and, That's something that we're going to have to deal with. You know, if you're around for a long time as a band, you realize that you will lose people and then you'll gain new people and that has to be okay too.
2: Yeah, I think that's something we're super afraid of, you know, that we would alienate what's got us here and that that would be the end for us. I think that's something we're, we're very afraid of and I mean, but at the same time, we talked about it. It's like, you just, like we talked about in the beginning with the, the, whether you're a band at the hotel cafe or, uh, playing some, you know, big theater, it, it's the same energy in that, like, why are you doing this? Like, of course you worked, you know, we worked so hard on this, this record and poured so much intense, emotional, um, you know, material into the record that like if it doesn't work you know and people are leaving or they don't want to be our fans anymore I think you just have to be proud of like you know that's where you know we sort of together are like you know what and we had sort of a breakthrough at some point I don't know what show number it was but where we're like we think we're pretty good you know and you have to you know and it's like and we see ourselves every day and yeah we're biased but like We're pretty good, and on a good night, screw those people that leave. You know, they don't know anything about music, kind of. And you kind of have to have that attitude, I think.
1: What was the biggest rock star moment you think you've had in the last few years of your rapid rise? Was it playing Bonnaroo? Was it playing some shows with Head & Heart? Like, what was that moment where you felt like, oh, my God, this is really happening?
2: The most recent one that I remember was, you know, we played... um, A show in our hometown here in Philadelphia, Um, and uh, you know, just growing up here, going to shows, you know, at venues that were like four times as small, you know, and seeing like a, uh, you know, like I think there were like twenty five hundred people there, Um, and it just which venue it was so surreal. Like it was, it was the first time I think that I I took it all in, you know, because so much of touring is like it's just like like you're like a bullet and you just, you don't feel things as much as maybe you should. And, you know, like I saw- Which venue was it? The Fillmore in Philadelphia. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a great room. And, um, and you know, I, I think there was something about being up there and like, you know, you're scanning the crowd and people maybe don't realize this, but if you know someone, even if it's that big of a crowd, like I feel like by the end of the show, I, I kind of look around enough that like, you know, I found my dad in the crowd and, you know, like it was just- it was like emotional and, and, and crazy to like the reactions we were getting on the songs. And we were, we were, you know, when there's a crowd like that, that's that energetic, I'm sure you guys are the same way. Like that's, those are the best, the best you play, you know, you, you just get so ramped up from the crowd and we were playing really well. And, you know, like bandmates were ripping like crazy solos and you're like, wow, like we're on fire and the crowd's going nuts. And, and it it sort of like slowed down for a second there. And then you know after the show like uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of like Philadelphia sports and I was able like to meet uh, a couple uh, Philadelphia sports uh, pros were, were in the audience and like you know came back that I, I wasn't even aware that that was a thing and you know they were like hanging with us drinking beers on the bus afterwards and yeah it was just this night where I was like you know I'm just like to, to from where it came from in, in Los Angeles you know just just you know working day jobs and and whatever to like, to that moment, it felt like something's happened here. Like th- this is, this yeah, is it's like, magical. this has reached people. And, and, you know, my parents were so proud and yeah, that, that was, that was a big night.
1: What did your parents do?
2: Um, so my, my, uh, mom, uh, worked as like a, I guess like a defense lawyer for a while. Um, and my, my dad is a, it's an interesting story. He like, he worked originally as like a out of out of college like for a while in like labs and stuff and then very late decided to like go to med school and so he became a doctor like I mean like when I was maybe like 6 or 7 years old mm. um so yeah there's no real like musical there's no like oh you did it just like your parents did there was no one in my family like I think we traced it back that like there's there's really no uh I don't even know there's no, yeah, exactly. So like for them, it was always like, it was always very abstract and, um, you know, I, I, it was just a cool moment.
1: Well, the title track of your new record, Rearrange Us, um, has this line, uh, you know, the pain don't change much at all, but it's, you know, it's part of growing up. You're going to have your heart broken. You're going to think you've made it. And then all of a sudden you didn't make it. And that's part of the journey. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's so much of what we were trying to, and that's why we made that the, the title track. I mean, it just sort of thematically describes, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about today, too. Just, you know, there's so many aspects of being a musician and the success that we've had in Mount Joy that are life-affirming, incredible, you know, achievements that I feel like when I do look back on I'm like, I can't believe I, you know, like you said, played a lot of blues or did the things that, you know, it's, you know, 15 year old me or 16 year old me would have like, you know, would have never dreamed of doing. And, but then there's, there's like, you're, you're totally right. There's at a certain point, like, honestly, for, I'm sure for so many bands, like the third gig on the van, when you're tired and you're, Like wow, what am I doing? You know, there's so many, almost more of those moments. Like I I describe being a musician as like being a a part-time musician and a full-time trucker. You know, like you're really just driving around and and you know selling this product, and the one or two hours that you get to play music is super special. But it is about that balance of you know understanding that no matter what you do, whether it's music or or anything else that you're gonna to have to take the good with the bad and and you're gonna to have to find a way to, to make the good outshine the bad
3: in time I made up my mind flesh if I tried. should sure. so-
2: Art And it's a privilege. Um, and so much of uh, so much of uh, being in a band in a healthy way, a touring band, is about having enough success to be able to say no. And I think fans would be surprised, you know, at what level a band is actually really in position to say no to things, because for so long, and I can tell you, at least from our perspective, we're at a place right now where, you know, whether it's a, a really sexy opening slot or, wow, like how would we turn down that amount of money to play a show? And it's often the shows that don't make any sense that offer you more money because they know it makes no sense to come to whatever remote area they're in or whatever. So it is an art uh, just economically learning how to say no. And, and I think that speaks to really why there's so much... Um, mental illness and and just like there's that 's sort of the dark side uh i guess i 'm making light of it a little bit, but you know that is sort of the dark side of of the music industry oh, yeah. right now is that that you know you 've put so much stock and um and emphasis on touring as a result of uh you know really no other solid revenue streams and and so it 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 really corners artists into doing things that frankly just are unhealthy.
1: Are you guys able to have some security from streaming income with stuff you know like silver lining going what sixty million streams, or is it sort of all relative because Spotify takes most of that money?
2: I, yeah, I mean for sure, like I think we're, we're getting to a point where um, you know some some of the dividends have started coming in, but it's still. I, you know, just being completely open and honest, it's like we're still completely at a point where, and I think it, it gets almost harder to say no in some respects when, you know, like, I don't know, I probably can't say, but like X-Band comes to you and they're like, you know, do you want to do this, you know, amphitheater show yeah. and, you know, we'll pay you this amount of money. And then you look at your schedule like you're talking about and you're like, we can't get from Vancouver to Ohio, but we have to say yes. And then you call your... Other guys like, well, you can't cancel Ohio, and you're like, oh God, well we're going to do them both, aren't we? Yeah. We're going to, oh my God, we're <laughs> going to do both of these things, you know? And you say yes, and and I think it's because, I, maybe at a certain point, but it is above us. Um, you realize that like any of these shows could be the moment that tips it over and allows it to be a career. You know, we we talk about being a career band and not wanting to be the flash in the pan, you know, not wanting to be like, you know, that was the band that made Silver Lining, right? And, you know, we want to be a band that lasts for a long time. We love doing this. And, and I want it to be my job. Uh, So if, you know, someone in your office, you know, offers you a a big promotion, but you've got to, you know, do this or that, like, it's the same sort of conundrum. And I think it gets almost harder to say no for us now, where, like, these are opportunities that, we, we would dream of to, and to say no is very, very difficult.
1: Why don't you take us out with a little intro of that song, Strangers that came together collaboratively.
2: Okay, sure. Yeah. And so for us, uh, actually we were finishing up the record and, um, we had a song that was sort of like in three parts and it was this very sort of jammy song. And I went home from the recording experience and, and, rewrote it sort of into like one song um but it was just on acoustic guitar and brought it in and uh, Jackie McClough piano player just had an amazing part that was just very sticky melody which sort of opens the song and um we sort of made that the theme of the song and um the rest of the band really just fit in around it Sam had this great guitar part and um the, the rhythm section just sort, sort of knew what to do with it and um, we recorded that song last actually and uh and yeah i it, it, it sort of wasn 't was one of those things where we didn 't know it was going to be the single, and then when it was finished uh sent it sent it back, and people loved it so it, it was cool to kind of pull that together at the last second and that's that 's kind of i think the power of a band that plays together a lot is that you know now we're we 're much faster at pulling things together that way
1: i 'm really impressed with you know in a short amount of time, the depth of songwriting and depth of uh, musicianship that you guys have created in these two records. And I would hope that uh, 10 years from now, I'm sitting in the front row watching you guys at the Hollywood Bowl. Because I think like that's the kind of thing where a band like you is just starting to really find their voice, and the voice is so strong.
2: I hope so, man. I mean, I hope so on so many levels. That, that would be a dream for us, obviously. That level of achievement would be a dream, and I know I speak for every artist. When you said, like, I want to be in the front row of the Hollywood Bowl, I pictured myself watching Paul Simon at the Hollywood Bowl and how many darn people there were, and I was like, man, we need to get back to having shows, whether Mount Joy is playing it or not. So... On so many levels, I hope that happens.
1: Yeah, I really wanted to go to that Paul Simon show, and I was I was on
2: tour, and I couldn't go. I I know the feeling.
1: All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me, and uh, you know, maybe we'll cross paths somewhere in the great beyond.
2: Yeah, hopefully, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I guess I have to-
3: Breath in your city like a fan
1: Give it up for Matt Quinn of Mount Joy, everybody. You can go to mountjoyband.com for their music and, dare I say, tour dates? Drive-in dates, they definitely have. Uh, October 2nd, they're playing at the Atlanta Motor Speedway in Atlanta, Georgia. Smoky Mountain Event Center in Asheville, North Carolina on the 3rd. Frederick, Maryland Fairgrounds Drive-In in in Maryland. And South Farms in Morris, Connecticut, October 7th. Can't someone figure out a drive-in in L.A. County for us to play? Wouldn't that be fun? I'm proposing it to anyone with millions of dollars and infrastructure to do so. We would love to play some music here in L.A. And actually, October second, we are playing a little VIP show at Jam in the Van headquarters in West L.A. Please check that out. Only a few seats remaining. Jaminthevan.com and Revival.com for more. If you like what we're doing on here, you may like the other podcasts on the BGS Network, including a new episode of The String featuring Newgrass Revival. And Bela Fleck looks pretty epic in that old school mullet. And if you go into our archives, we have 70 plus shows to bring you, like Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn from last year. We really, really had a great time talking to them, and they played a little banjo for you at the end. If you found us on thebluegrasssituation.com, thank you for being here. And you may be confused why I'm bringing you so many rock and roll bands and blues artists and folks from around the world playing music that's a little out of your comfort zone. But that is the point. Roots music, to me, is a beautiful, expanding thing. It's what makes America truly unique. It is the music that we export to the world. Blues, soul. Folk, rock and roll, it's all there. And if you have a band that you love or an artist that I should hear, please hit me up, Show on the Road podcast on Instagram or road.com contact page. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. As always, if you dig what you hear on here, maybe you discovered your new favorite band or artist, tell your friends and leave us a kind review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. It means so much and helps people find us. That's it for me. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Zach Lupiton, and we'll see you next week with more episodes. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you on the trail.